moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your host, Dr. Jim, your resident talent retention, attraction, development, and turnover nerd. Today, we have a special episode and we are actually flying in missing host formation. So Lawrence will not be joining us. He had some prior commitments, but it gives me a great opportunity to do my best Lawrence Brown impression and reduce the risk of having a brick thrown at me. So here we go. So playing the part of Lawrence Brown, at least for the intro, is going to be me. Hello, I am Lawrence Brown, also known as LB. Hello, Lawrence Brown. Hello. How was that? That, that was the worst Lawrence Brown impression ever, but at least like a typical dad, I made myself laugh. So that's all that counts. So we are in for a great episode. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of interesting discussions. And we have another first on our show in that we have our first Latino featured guest. And I'm going to hand off to uh, Cesar Lostenau right now. And he is going to tell us a little bit about himself. Cesar, glad to have you on. Thrilled to be with you, Jim, and your audience and the imaginary LB with us. He's a good friend of mine, and I wish he was with us, but I hope to catch up with him the next time around. Thank you for the chance. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think we're definitely going to have you back. There is a panel discussion that's in the works that's going to be DEI focused. So you are going to be one of the featured panelists on that show. It's, it's definitely going to be something that is going to be a lot of fun to put together. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to get a, a few things out in terms of how the show is doing. Thanks, everyone who has listened to the show. We're getting some tremendous response. Glasgow, Scotland is our biggest audience so far. So whatever we're doing must be tracking in Glasgow. Obviously, Chicago, Atlanta, Towson, Maryland, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, San Jose, California, and New Berlin, Wisconsin are also showing up pretty nicely. So thank you all for for the support. And we look forward to continuing the show. Every week, we're going to have at least one new episode dropping on Thursday. And it's a lot of fun talking to some really interesting people. And Caesar is no exception. So Caesar, thanks again for joining us. And tell us a little bit about where you're at now before we dive into the conversation about where it all started. Absolutely, Jim. First, congratulations with the viewing and listening audience that you have out there. You're global, and it's exciting to be a part of this movement, especially so early on. Kudos to you and LB. So a little bit about myself. Again, Cesar Lawsonow. It may not sound like a very Latino last name. That's because it isn't. I'm originally from Lima, Peru. I was born in Peru, an immigrant story, and have moved here in Chicago, which is where I live and have lived ever since I was eight years old. In terms of where I am today, today I have the pleasure and the honor to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as growth markets for one of the biggest real estate companies in the world. Uh, we're a global company. It's Century 21 Real Estate LLC based out of Madison, Wisconsin, although I, I report and work out of Chicago, Illinois. Have the pleasure to do really two things fundamentally. And at a high level, you should know and your audience should know I help the brand diversify its franchise owners. So, very intentional about reaching out to realtor entrepreneurs or those that aspire to be real estate entrepreneurs and own their own Century 21 and get them into the organization. And then internally, I'm a coach, I'm an advocate, I'm a confident with some of our leaders to help them with their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. That's a little bit about where I am today. And uh, I can't wait to get into the part of the conversation where we talk about some of the initiatives that you're driving within your organization. And full disclosure, this is not a sponsored conversation. I've known Caesar for a while back in his days at Big Blue. I, I would definitely recommend connecting with him on LinkedIn. You can follow his career trajectory there. It's amazing work that you're doing, and we're we're excited to have you. You touched on a little bit of where you are now. Let's wind it back to where it all started. So you're originally from Lima, Peru. So let's get into that immigrant story. And 
I'll try not to nerd out too much about it because we're two peas in a pod. But tell me a little bit about those formative experiences. I'm, I'm glad you're asking. I think they're relatable to maybe some of your listeners and some maybe that may not have an immigrant background, but may understand it through just shared experiences with friends or movies or whatever the case may be. So my parents, my mom and dad, back in the late 70s, made a decision that they wanted to invest in the education that my younger brother, Gustavo, and I would have in our future. So they were very comfortable in Lima, Peru, but an opportunity from my mom's side of the family came up to say, move to the U.S. and have your kids educated in U.S. universities. So that was the the big why for my parents, which is why my brother and I came here and we're blessed because we followed their vision and their path. That was formative for me because I didn't speak a word of English when I moved to the U.S. Like many other immigrants, my parents tried to send us to English school when we were in Peru preparing for the journey. They said, hey, go in here. I learned literally three words and that's all I knew. I didn't even know how to say I need to go to the bathroom. And that was pretty embarrassing if I were to be very just transparent with all of you. But I've had some setbacks uh, with just trying to understand a new culture, a new language and everything that happened to me. But that was transformational because it was those type of experiences that led me to where I am today, fighting and really advocating for the the one that isn't as privileged, the one that sometimes is marginalized, like I was ever since I moved to the U.S. So it was a great upbringing in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood in the Northwest side, went to a Chicago public school, had a chance to attend all my post high school education here in the Illinois area, and have blessed, graduated, and then joined the workforce right away with this pride that I actually embraced during my college years at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a very non-diverse school in the early 90s, I might add, where I really got my sense of identity saying, who am I? Yes, I'm Peruvian. Yes, I'm a male. Yes, I'm a son. I'm a, I'm a brother. But what else am I? And that's really where I found my roots to my Latin American background and my Latino identity as a Latino living in the U.S., a little bit about how it started from the beginning for me on a personal note. That's a great roadmap that you laid out. I think one of the differences between your experience as a Generation Zero immigrant and mine is that when I came over, I was fluent in English. In India, English is the second language and they drill it just like everything else. They drill that and every other subject into you from the time that you're a kid. The gap for me was in understanding the colloquialisms that are associated with language in general, wherever you are. But when you came over, you were a blank slate as far as English. How, how did you pick up the language? What were the things that you did to get yourself fluent from a communication perspective? That was a, really a combination of the public school that I attended and their bilingual classes and, and the upbringing at home. My parents were very intentional about making sure we were immersed in the language. We still speak Spanish at home with my mom and dad today. However, when we were younger, my parents would force us to watch English television. We obviously naturally would gravitate towards the Spanish language television. They said, nope, immerse yourself. I grew up in a neighborhood that was very international, very cosmopolitan. We were all immigrants and from different parts of the world, I might add. But the beauty was English was our common denominator. So all the friends that I had from Yugoslavia, Arab, the Arab nations, and other parts of the world, all we had to speak that sort of broken English to communicate. So it was an immersion that happened on purpose at home, at school, and even with the friends that I had to have. I, I can sync up with some of that stuff. I think the the one difference is that when I was here, or when I got here, we weren't in an international area, and even as somebody that knew English. I was afraid to ask questions. Were there any formative experiences or big signposts that, that started getting into your head as far as, hey, this is what I think the world is during that growth phase before you got into high school? What, what experiences did you have that really stand out as, huh, this is something that's going to define how I view the world for a period of time? I think the thing that stands out for me is just that I was different. The fact that I didn't speak the dominant language, the fact that I didn't come from the dominant culture is really what shaped who I am, how I viewed the world. In addition to just my upbringing at home and, and what it looked like and what the values that I got. 
from my mom and dad growing up, no doubt about that. But I would say that the experiences that I had with, for example, I'll never forget when I first moved to the States and coming from a Latin American country with pretty much 80 degrees every day, or at least it felt that way. And then feeling the temperature changes right here in Chicago, where it was spring 50, 60 degrees, and I was still wearing my heavy coat. And, and my friends were looking at me, even the teacher w- would approach me and say, you really don't need that. Because here in the US culture, it's 50s, 60s, and people are putting on shorts and t-shirts. Where I come from culture, 50s, 60s is still cold, and you're wearing a heavy coat. So those are the kind of experiences that really cemented my idea that I'm different. I think differently. I feel differently. I am differently. What I ate at home was very different. Growing up in a strong Peruvian home, I ate Peruvian food every day. I'd go to school and eat cafeteria food for lunch. And I was like, what is this? I I was not a big fan. But all these cultural shocks that happened to me during those formative years that really cemented the idea, like, I'm different, I'm different. Eventually, I went into embracing that difference. But I might add that during those years, it was more about assimilate and figure out, okay, I need to eat this. I need to speak like this. And I need to understand these cultures that were not authentically me. I'm grinning about your cafeteria experience because yeah, I I think you might have had Indian food at some point in in your life. In terms of flavors and textures and, and yes. flavor profiles, oh man, this just took me back to week two of when I was in the country. Mm-hmm. So I, I had never had a hamburger, not any sort of thing like that, never had fried chicken. And when when we moved into Oak Park, so we were lower middle class, lower class by American standards family when we moved, we were poor. And I would be sleeping in my bunk and I would see the the Brown's chicken sign, which was blinking red all the time. And I, I would have this great smell. And the first decent flavored food was Brown's fried chicken. And to this day, that's like my favorite fried chicken bread. The whole food conversation, it, it, it's really interesting to me because when I was a kid, when I came over, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom had just come out. And when people would find out that I'm Indian, they'd ask me all these questions about, do you eat live snakes and monkey brains and all that sort of stuff? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So the culture shock from the food experience, I, I could totally relate to that. One thing that stood out about what you just, the focus was on assimilation, but even it sounds like when you were young, you were building your identity of self. And the reason why it struck out as interesting to me is that I didn't really even tie into I'm different and I'm not with the dominant culture sort of stuff until much later in life. So I think that's an interesting difference or or, or dynamic. Was there anything that you can point to? Because I'm, I'm thinking through your conversation. Your parents were focused on assimilation. They wanted you to watch English language programs. My parents were the same way, but I'm really curious on what was the mental switch that made you embrace your cultural heritage much earlier in life than perhaps what I did. Is there anything that you can point to on that? And I go back to my parents for that. They were very uh, purposeful, deliberate about making sure that my brother Gustavo and I did not forget where we came from. I remember vividly, all right, before we'd leave and my mom would give us the blessing and as a grown up Catholic, we'd get the blessing at the door threshold before we left. And and she would say, give us recommendations, ideas, thoughts around, don't forget where you come from. Stand up for what you believe in. And in fact, I'll never forget the coaching she gave us once. We were in a CTA train and someone was Spanish dominant speaker was struggling talking to someone that spoke English. And they were almost like in an argument, right? You've probably seen these episodes in the past where just the dominant language speaker, in this case, the English speaker, getting frustrated with the person who couldn't speak Spanish. And my mom would nudge us to say, go help them because we were bilingual and we would help them. So we'd go out of our way to help some Spanish speak. So I would say that it started at home. It was my mom putting in our head to say, you can't forget where you came from. And you are proving you're Latino. She didn't necessarily call it out all the time like that, but through the actions, it just helped me reinforce that this is who I am. This is where I come from. These are my cultures. These are my people. Even though they weren't Peruvians, when you move to the U.S., at least for a lot of Latin Americans, you 
more from being wherever your native country is, Venezuelan, Colombian, Mexican, Puerto Rican, to now you are Latino, a more general term. So that's where it started really at home to answer your question most directly. And and the upbringing that I had with my parents and my mom in particular, kind of putting that into our head. I think the way that I distill that down is that you actually listen to your parents, whereas I was like, (laughs) no, I'm not paying attention to any of that. I'm going to do my own thing. And I didn't forget where I came from, but I had no time, space, or any of that for the the cultural aspects of where I came from. And it's interesting. I started like getting back into it in small degrees much later in life. But when I look at my friend group, it's still mostly Americans of all sorts of different types, which is fine. I have very few Indian friends because the thing that I always struggled with when I was growing up is that my Indian circle of friends or my family's Indian circle of friends only wanted to do Indian things like go to Indian movies, eat Indian food, hang out with other Indians, talk about Indian things. And I was just like, you know, I I, want a variety. You wanted diversity. Yeah. And, and, and it always bothered me in how some of that stuff would manifest through my time growing up because I would have the circle of Indian families and say, well, why are you hanging out with this type of person? Or why are you hanging out with that type of person? And I was like, I'm hanging out with that type of person because they're interesting. That circle that I was in really pushed you to be insular. And I've never been somebody that's been like super insular and staying with whatever my own people were, whatever the phrase is. So I, I reflexively fought against it, but I went too far the other way. And I think looking back now, there's a, uh, I probably missed out on a lot just by my own bullheadedness. That's what happens when you get older. You start realizing how dumb you were when you were younger because I was so reflexively the other way. I'm curious going along that line. So you gave me a little bit of texture in in your experience growing up. Now, how did that get amplified or extended or expanded through high school and college? What was high school like as uh, as you're going through this journey as an immigrant. I'll tell you, my high school experience was also one where I was different. I was part of the other, which it's beautiful because that helped me into where I am today. So looking forward to that piece of the conversation. But I was part of the other in that I lived across the street from my high school where most of my classmates lived in other neighborhoods, other parts of the city. So they would commute either by car, by bus, train, whatever the case is. So that was formative for me because I didn't have many friends outside of the high school hours, if you will, in terms of saying, hey, look, I saw my high school friends during the high school days and hours, and then they all disappeared. I didn't have a car. I didn't have transportation. My parents brought us up to to hang out in front of the house, to live, hang out with our friends near that area. So it was just different in that I, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school. That's what that really resulted in. I was pretty studious, didn't necessarily always get the best grades, but I was pretty studious. I tried very hard. So that kept me really focused on the books rather than being uh, the prom king and being in sports and things of that nature. So it was very lonely to a certain extent. I always had my brother. I had my friends that lived around the house. So I grew up there in high school in a very a close circle of international friends, didn't really have that sense of identity. That didn't happen as strong as it did until my college years. And I'll share that story a little bit later. But to answer your question most directly, high school was pretty much a lot like grammar school. What was the socioeconomic spread within the high school? I was in a lower middle class, maybe lower class for some of the my classmates and students. High school and my parents were working class, um, blue collar employees. They both work. They both. So we were privileged in that respect, but we really didn't have a lot. We didn't have two cars. We didn't have a fancy garage. Yes, my parents were homeowners, but I should say that they were co-homeowners, meaning we grew up in a two flat where my aunt and uncle lived in one floor and we lived in the second floor. So my brother and I grew up in this sort of upbringing where we had enough and we thought we were okay. We never thought we were rich. Never thought we were extremely poor. We just lived day to day. My parents gave us what they could, but they couldn't necessarily give us everything that we wanted. One of the guests that we'll have on later in a different show talks about the silent trauma of being poor. And I don't think I w- you or I would call our experience traumatic in the traditional sense. 
I went to a high school that was probably upper middle class. I went to a Catholic school and my parents were adamant to send me there versus the local public school because the public school was not good. And, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful for that. I don't know if I really connected it in the moment, but I automatically had a sense of this is a different world that I'm coming from mm-hmm. in this high school. So I had to commute by take two buses to get to the town that the the high school was in. And like when it came to what people were wearing, what brands they were wearing. And maybe even and, what cars they were driving in some all, cases. Yeah, I could see all, that. All of that stuff. I always felt a little uncomfortable in my own skin during that time because of that difference. I'm, I'm curious what my worldview would have been if my high school experience or even my grade school experience were more contained in a a, a smaller gap of socioeconomic classes. So when you're going through high school and you're looking on the one hand of really defining your sense of self, and then on the other hand, seeking for belonging and community, what were the things that you did to marry both of those things? I was intentional about getting involved in high school. Like I mentioned earlier, I was pretty, pretty academic with hit the book as much as possible. My sense of identity wasn't so much in the sense of, okay, I'm a Latino going to Chicago Public School in the Albany Park neighborhood, but it was more, well, I'm different than some of my peers as in I like to study and I like to learn. So I joined the clubs. The chess club was one of the clubs. And, and that's something my parents taught me when my brother and I were really young. That's, that was the identity that I formed for myself. So it wasn't so multicultural. It was more, I'm different. I am the other because I live so close to high school and most people disappear after high school ends and I never see them again until we're back in class on Monday. So it was more about, okay, where I'm different as in I'm a little more studious than many in my high school. As you can imagine, going to a school from a lower and middle, lower middle kind of class, academics sometimes isn't that important for others, for many, right? And it wasn't for many of my peers at Roosevelt High School, but that's where I sort of cemented my sense of identity saying, you know what, I'm going to hit the books and I'm going to really enjoy this. And when I don't, I'm going to get tutoring from my uncle, who was a teacher at the public school system at Lane Tech High School, who lived on the first floor, where he would coach me through things. So that was my sense of identity. And that's how I led during my high school year. I would suspect uh, your experience is pretty consistent with most other immigrant experiences where your parents didn't give you an option of being substandard from an education perspective. (laughs) Spot on. It was their mission. And it's funny because my brother and I, knew that from the beginning, they were very deliberate with us, telling us, this is why we're here. This yeah. is our why. And I think my brother and I, of course, embraced that maybe subconsciously saying, we're here on a mission. My parents wanted us to do well. This is why they sacrificed everything they had going on. We're going to do this. We were obedient in that respect to say, what do we need to do to make this happen? And I'm blessed to say we did. It's one of those common threads that has come up in the conversations with LB, in James, one of our earlier episodes. It's uh, So far, it's been pretty consistent with the immigrant experience, the focus on education. And I, I think when we're looking at DEI in general, education is that great equalizer and access to good education or, or effective education is really the thing that can move the needle in shifting that generational outcome. It's interesting that that you have that focus too. So let's fast forward to your experience at the University of Illinois, home of the Fighting Illini, and your early career. So what was it like going from your international upbringing, your international neighborhood roots, your fairly diverse high school roots experience to land a corn? That's where the culture shock really happened. That's when I really understood and went through my own transformation to where I am today as a DNI practitioner, where I was thrusted and made a conscious choice to attend the U of I. I fell in love with the campus and all, all types of things three, two and a half hours away from home. It just made a lot of sense to go there. Didn't realize, though, how non-diverse the school was until, of course, I went down there my freshman year got oriented with everything and said, wow, this is really different. And wow, I am really part of the other here. Back then, the early 90s, diverse populations at the U of I was, I think, a campus of about 35,000 students. I believe we were about 3%. And with a campus so vast in the middle of cornfield, 
with representation from all over the state, I would say, I noticed I was different, not only in the way I look, the way I thought, the way I acted, my beliefs, my political beliefs, I would say. Uh, growing up in urban Chicago, very democratic, then you go to central Illinois, middle of cornfield, much more Republican. That's when I said, I am very different. And that's really when my journey started to say, what am I? Who am I? What do I really stand for as an adult? Since I knew I was making that conscious choice into adulthood, this was preparing me for the workforce and everything else that comes in life after education, right? Marriage, home ownership, kids, all that stuff that happened. So that's really that, that really being mindful of the fact that everything is so different in the other end of the spectrum compared to where I came from is when I said, when I answered those questions deliberately by getting involved with organizations and just learning things that helped me understand this is who I am and this is what I stand for. Were there any signpost events during your college experience or, or was it just, oh my God, I'm at the U of I and there's three brown people here that triggered the shift? You know what? It was experiences every day. It was just looking around, just the feel of things. It was just so different, just aesthetically, like what I saw, the mansions, the houses. I was in an urban environment. Then to your point, you're thrusted in this middle cornfield. Everyone looks different, talks different, thinks different. Someone's around me every day from the administration, from the teachers, from my classmates. That just really helped me understand, okay, this is very different. And I was seeking really going back to some of your earlier stories, even for your own journey, as I think about and process it for what I'm sharing with you and your audience, I've always had this common denominator of looking for that comfort. And I commend you because from your story, as I'm hearing your journey, it's been like, hey, I, I know I could be comfortable in this community, in this environment, but I'm going to go out of my way. And in your case, probably the intellectual curiosity got you to think, let me look at this and let me look at those segments. I was pretty comfortable in an international environment where everyone was different. Then you put me when it's very homogeneous, I was uncomfortable. And I recognized that emotionally. And that's when I said, let me get into my comfort, my comfort being Peruvian, being Latino. Let me start seeking people that look like the environment that I came from. And that's when I made conscious choices, get involved in organizations that had, that replicated what I had back home in Chicago, like a Latino fraternity, like the La cultural center and things of that nature. And I said, okay, this is where I feel comfortable. And this is where I more had a sense of identity that was a little bit more pronounced, I would say, rather than before. The part that is really interesting, by and large, you and I have very similar backgrounds and upbringings. And when I hear your college experience and compare it to mine, it's it goes like you're seeking out your own community and strengthening there. And I'm going through the same experience where I'm in a predominantly Caucasian campus mm -hmm. and I'm one of the few brown people that are on campus. I'm actually not joining any of the ethnic clubs. I was super mm -hmm. involved. I was in uh, a Greek fraternity. I was in student council. So in this respect, that aspect of my nature where I try to pack 36 hours into a 24-hour day hasn't changed. I, at some level, I knew I was different, but I didn't really connect it until later. When you were in college, you took an active role in finding your community, building that around being active across a number of community first oriented extracurriculars and clubs and things like that. Where was your focus from a learning perspective as you're navigating college? Is that where the DEI trigger got set off or did that start forming later on as you started your professional life? Definitely later. At the U of I, I was focused on what I was there to do, following my parents' mission, right? To get an education and start a job. I made a choice to study finance. I was a business major. A lot of that was rooted in my parents. My dad was an accountant in Peru. As I mentioned, he took on a blue-collar job in the U.S. He didn't speak a word of English. He started his career in the U.S. as a busboy at O'Hare. I'll never forget that when he told us that. And we were like, my brother and I were like, wow, dad, we didn't know that. Talk about humble beginnings. But my dad and I growing up as a small kid and, and, and in Peru and seeing him come home from work in a suit and shiny shoes, I wanted to replicate that as an adult. So I made a choice to study business. I'll share this with you that 
that sense of identity didn't necessarily come until later with regards to being a DNI practitioner in this space. But back then, I made a conscious choice to, as electives, take Latin American history classes, as an example. I stayed true to my finance and business academics, because that's the vision that I had back then in terms of what I wanted to do after college. But I that let me take this Latin American class here. Let me just understand that so that I could apply that academics as a, not as, not even as a minor, but at least just to understand that. So that's what that uh, journey was like in college. So as you enter the world of work, you've gone through grammar school and high school and college as somebody who leans more to the academic side towards technical excellence. You pick a technical field in terms of finance, and I'm assuming you started off your career in that finance career. What was your focus as you enter that field? When you're looking at being in finance, where did you focus your effort? Everybody starts a career with the intent of being the best. This is how I'm going to become the best at what I'm going to do. Where did you focus your effort? The short answer to your question is the people aspect of it. Yes, I practice the technical aspect, but I'll never even forget my journey when I first graduated college and got into the workforce and was doing some finance work where I came to the realization, yeah, this is what I was trained to do. Yeah, this is cool, but it wasn't my passion. It didn't necessarily get me up saying, oh my God, I can't wait to do that budget variance analysis when I get into the office. I should share also that this is where LB and I have a great commonality. I started my career not in finance, although that's what I studied. LB and I share a background as in my first job out of school, at least, was with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I was part of their management trainee program. And LB, I know, was a senior leader at Enterprise Rent-A-Car in his background. So him and I clicked right away when he was a former Iraq professional, just like I was. So you should know, in terms of going back to one of your comments, I didn't necessarily start that. That wasn't the first job. My fraternity brother who helped me get that job in enterprise since there was a couple of us out of the same fraternity that started out in their management training program. But it's always been the people aspect, Jim, to answer your question most directly. I'm still technical. I do all the data analytics and tech stuff in my role today at Century 21 and leading in that effort. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, it's people first and it always has. This is really interesting. So once, once we have our YouTube channel set up, and we don't have it set up yet, you'll notice in in the video that obviously I'll have a a dumb grin on my face. So for those that are just listening to the audio version, I'm grinning like a moron as uh, Caesar's talking about his enterprise experience, because I didn't know that he actually was part of the green machine. And that's how LB and I know each other too, because I actually worked for LB as a management trainee. So we have yet another clone as uh, the things that le- I learned at enterprise site page references enterprise people at. We have another clone or drone on the show. We're, We're going to have to talk to enterprise for some sponsorship here. But <laughs> yeah, it, it was transformational experience for me, for sure. Loved it. But then glad that I've moved on from that experience into where I am. Today. A, a lot of the foundational experiences, or at least wiring that I have came out of there, good or bad. I think for those that have worked there, will understand the up or out culture. And that's a great culture for your time there. But if you carry that on through later aspects of your career, I think one of the big things that I learned as I maintained that up or out mindset, probably longer than I should have, is that you have to be patient with yourself and bring other others with you if you want to go as far as you want to go. So obviously, Caesar, you learned that lesson early, focus on the people aspect of it. And again, this is another one of those differences. You focused on people right off the bat. I focused on technical excellence right off. So it's another interesting divergence between your career arc and and mine. So, And and here's the thing that I'll add as I think about your listening audience here is I'm sure as folks are gravitating towards both parts of the journey, right? You made it very clear. We both went different directions, went to hit the tree and said, okay, Jim went left, Caesar went right. I could imagine that some of your listener audience members are saying, you know what? I did what Jim did. I did what Caesar did, or maybe some did a combination. I want to dig a little bit more on your relationship focus. The purpose of this show is to have senior leaders talk about their journeys, the lessons that they learned, and focus in on pushing those lessons out so that people that are in early stages of their careers can 
adapt those things and apply it to their careers to move their careers further, faster. So when you look at your focus on relationships, why is it critical to focus on that aspect of the competency first, or maybe equally as it is the technical side of it? It goes back to something you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jim, in your folks and my folks are very grounded in the priority of education with the upbringing. My experience has taught me that education is key. It's foundational, but it's really been relationships that have gotten me to where I am today. It's been access to mentors, access to sponsors, access to good friends like you and LB to help me understand and help me learn and help me navigate. The journey continues. I am still, I would venture to say, to me, it's not lessons learned, it's lessons learning. I'm still in that journey and I am still on purpose talking to mentees saying, have you thought about this? Or I've been in a similar situation Speaking of cascading leadership, to your point, it, to me, it's it, that's the beauty of this work of the leadership journey that we're all on. If you're doing it on purpose, you're always being mindful of what you're learning, what's out there, and then saying, okay, here's what you may want to consider doing to others. And that's why I value relationships. Back to your question, it's really, from my experience as a close to 30-year professional now, it, 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 the technical aspects helped me in the beginning of my career journey, the finance, the technical, and yeah, it's still helping me to a certain extent because I'm bringing some of that into the DNI work today, but I don't lead with that. I'd lead with that. And then some of that, again, go back to my upbringing, which is the way my parents were helping us understand. I, I, I believe that I was grounded in not only emotional intelligence, but more so social intelligence and how my parents were teaching us, specifically my mom and how to behave with your superiors, how to behave with your peers, how to behave with others. So a lot of that was rooted there into where I am today. It's about people and genuinely, and then understanding how we're different and serving others. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that is the breakthrough when I'm examining how did you and I coming from the same background go to different paths in our journey. And I referenced this a little bit. So in my, my parents were hardcore and this is typical of a lot of Indian families, hardcore on technical and educational excellence. Everybody's heard the phrase, the, the Asian F, and that's basically like anything lower than an A minus, and even an A minus might get you in trouble as far as that goes. So my family and my upbringing was super into the, the, the tiger mom, tiger dad, Asian F upbringing. So from a very young age, it was pounded into me on the technical excellence of everything that you pursue. If you're not going to approach the attack it with the pursuit of perfection in mind, don't even bother taking it on. So I think when I look at the value of relationships and where I learned that later in my career, and you learned that earlier in your career, your parents actually were the ones that influenced that focus. And I think that's an important, important takeaway. I think honestly, if I had focused on the relationship aspect as heavily as I did on the technical aspects, I probably would have advanced further faster in, in my career. So that's a great call out on your point on, on the conversation. So thanks for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit more in the relationship side of it and dig into worldview and career progression through your cultural lens. So you picked up the value of relationships early. You picked up on the value of internal networks. How did you marry that with a cultural lens as you approach the world of work and you advance through your career? Jim, so for me, growing up Latino, as a Latino culture, many of your listener audiences may or may not know, but it's, it's very communal. Latinos are, are all about communities and families and extended family. That's just the way a lot of us are raised. And, and, and that happens in a lot of other communities as well, but it's certainly pronounced in the Latino community, at least in the culture that I grew up in. So I apply that to work every single day. I think about a very recent project, the deliverable that I had for one of my projects, DNI efforts at Century 21. And as I reflected on the success that we had, where we were offering 121, we are offering 121 stipends, educational stipends for Latinas to join the real estate industry. That's one of the ways where I'm being purposeful about diversifying the industry and, of course, Century 21. But as I reflected on the success of the project, I realized that I was very intentional about building a sense of community with 
making sure that everyone felt that sense of belonging on purpose. I didn't neglect it. I was very deliberate about saying who's not being heard at this meeting, who is not being counted while where I'm taking a poll or something along that line among my team members and, and all the stakeholders, I would say. That's how I apply who I am, what I'm about to my day-to-day work. I am looking to collaborate with everyone and anyone. Not everybody wants to. I recognize that, but believe me, I lead with that. I at least make that attempt to extend a hand and say, can we partner? Can we collaborate? And that's how I bring that into my career. That's some awesome insight. And it actually provides a great lead-in to some of the work that you're doing, specifically targeting Latino communities at Century 21. So talk a little bit about what you're doing in general in terms of expanding the scope or influence or or participation of Latino communities in Century 21 in real estate, and also tie in why that's important, why that initiative is important, why you're passionate about it. I'll start with the why, because I think that's an important part of what we all do, right? It starts with the why, as as, uh, Simon Chinnick says, and many others. Century 21 is very committed to being reflective of the marketplace that we serve. We understand that it makes a lot of economic and even non-economic sense for us to look like our customers, to think like our customers. And the way we do that is through our real estate agents and real estate professionals across the country, across the world, I might add, although my program is focused on the US side of Century 21. So that's our why. We want to be reflective because we know that there's a financial and even non-financial gain for that so that we could sustain and thrive as an organization. The way we do that, and I've been asked when I joined the brand about a year ago, was to help them put together a strategy, to help them do that on purpose, to make sure that we are being being very deliberate about reflecting the marketplace in all diverse communities, I might add. However, we're prioritizing the Latino community because 70% of the net new homeowners in the next 20 years, by 2040, according to the Urban Institute, will be Hispanic. The Latino community in the U.S. is young, thriving, and just entering those mortgage-ready years. So we understand that the data shows that the Hispanic community, among all the communities, will be leading in terms of home purchases for new home buyers. So we're being deliberate about programs like the Empowering Latinas program that I was just mentioning, a deliberate program where we are offering 121 educational stipends across the country, meaning we will pay for your school so that you can get your real estate license and maybe just maybe join one of our offices across the country. That's a fantastic initiative. And I think you and I philosophically are well aligned because whenever I've been in a role where I've built teams, I've been deliberate and intentional about building teams that look like the communities that we serve, even before DEI was you know, what it is today. Like I think we're in the golden age or it never existed before. So we can't call it a renaissance. We're in the golden age of DEI. But one of the things that, that's been interesting for me to observe is that everybody talks about DEI and says that it's important and call me cynical, but a lot of organizations in terms of how they execute it seems like a check the box effort. So when you're trying to talk about DEI in general or specific elements of DEI, What's the business impact of focusing on it? How does DEI as an overall organizational initiative impact the bottom line of a business? I lead with the data to help answer that question, Jim. And sometimes it's a situational leadership scenario, depending on who I'm influencing and, and of course, talking to, mostly with senior level executives and all the industries that I've worked in, it's we got to lead with the data. We have to show them that's where the growth is. That's where the population trends are. I think that's critical and that really ties to the business impact. Most senior leaders in business are about the data and understanding where their future customer is going for the sustainability of the organization. And that's what I've had the privilege to do at Century 21 and all the organizations to show the senior executives, this is what's happening. And, And these are unbiased sources, by the way. These aren't necessarily thinking, hey, this is where our community is. Many of these executives see it. They realize it even in their own communities. So then they're connecting like, okay, this is what I'm experiencing at home or my kid in school. 
having multicultural friends. And now the data is showing me that the growth of the business and the future customer in Century 21 in many industries is more and more diverse. I need to put this together and do something about it. Stay on purpose. That's a great summation. And I think whatever your feelings on the topic might be, the data is going to point to what the data points and it doesn't care about what your feelings on the topic are. And it, it really aligns with an element of my wiring is that I might have a gut instinct about a thing, but what does the data say, whether this is worth pursuing or not? So if you're going to take a calculated approach to it, the data doesn't lie. The demographics are shifting. And if as a business, you want to continue to grow and evolve and build your customer base, you have to respond to the demographic trends across all categories. And that's going to be the difference between the companies that execute it well are going to continue to prosper. And the ones that don't are going to be struggling with why are we in decline? So that's a great call out. And uh, thanks for sharing that. Lean on that, Jim, real quick. I would just venture to say for your listening audience, and you're absolutely right. You got to think about all the other emerging markets, but the way we're doing it, and I would encourage other leaders to think about it, especially the executives who are tuning in, is to have a sense of priority because the data shows that there's tons of opportunities in the U.S. markets and multicultural, maybe even overseas, as you think about some of your listeners in the U.K., but you want to make a deliberate decision that's here's where my priority is going to be because we can't boil the ocean in this work. We could be mindful of what's happening, but then we need to think, where am I going to prioritize? And then cascade into other segments, which is the work that I'm leading at Century 21 today. Now, great call out. And, uh, and thanks again for sharing. I think, again, Caesar, thanks for a great conversation, but I want to tie it all together. So when you look at your entire journey and the object of this show or the purpose of this show is to give emerging leaders and young professionals or leaders in general, the key things that they need to focus on early in their career or at any point in their career to move further faster. What are the big lessons that you want people to walk away with in this conversation and from your experience that helped you advance to where you were? And maybe we can move the needle five years earlier, 10 years earlier for the people that are coming up. The guiding principle that I have and have the privilege of sharing with many mentees and others that I get to influence through wonderful opportunities like this is really rooted in having a GPS mindset with everything you do. Let me unpack that. Having a GPS mindset with everything you do as you cascade leadership or whether you're on the receiving side of that advice. For me, it's been about G representing having a growth mindset always learning, always understanding and connecting the dots with things that are happening to make sure that you are leading on purpose and mindful of what the data shows. P represents having a positive mindset. I get beat up every day going into the virtual office that I get to go to because someone says no to an idea that I have, or someone says, you can't do this or you can't do that. I'm not going to let you do this, but I maintain a positive mindset to help me get through those challenges. And I have the privilege of working with a coach that helps me see the positive with a lot of the things that I do. And then the S represents having a servant leadership mindset. And this is where the servant leadership like UNLB and many others practice and I get to emulate every day, just making sure we're serving. It, it's about people for me, especially in the DNI space, especially in the real estate arena, it's a people business. So if you're listening audience and others just have that mindset that I've embraced as a guiding principle, that GPS mindset, growth, positive thinking, and servant leadership, I can almost guarantee you, no matter where you are in the journey, you will thrive and you'll be able to share that with others and cascade leadership. Yeah, that's a great summary. I think one of the, I want to tie this into a couple of things that stood out in our conversation. In some respects, it's almost been a therapy session for me. I think it's important to, you mentioned this early on in the conversation, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you are from a cultural perspective. And even though every culture has those things that might annoy uh, you at an individual level, that doesn't mean that you need to do what I did, which is go 180 degrees away from that culture and, and try to reinvent the wheel. So I think that's particularly important about your, your experience because that's going to mitigate those feelings of, I don't quite fit in because if you, if you embrace the cultural aspects of your upbringing and your background, you always know where home is and you'll probably lessen the sense of being or feeling out of place. So I think 
That's another important thing. And not to put words in your mouth, I think the other key takeaway that came out of this conversation, Caesar, that I think is important for people to know is focus on relationships first. The technical expertise and the technical excellence will get you a seat at the table. But if you want to move the needle in terms of how you influence an organizational direction, you need to build a deep network. And the way you start that exercise of building a deep network inside and outside of your organization is focus on connecting with people at an individual and a human level, because a technical expertise will only take you so far. So not to turn this into a Cliff Notes version of the show, but that's what I took out of the conversation. And, and, and I think those are important lessons as well, in addition to that GPS mindset. Yeah, you know, the way I think about it, and by the way, as I think about even your journey, and I'm, I'm learning through that, through this podcast, I think that's just the choices that you made. And the beauty for you is that you've, through your own leadership journey, you've thought, okay, now you're in a different place, you have a different mindset, and we all evolve at different points in our life. You as a father, you as a husband. And I think about that, that sometimes those just day-to-day experiences and upbringing is what obviously helps us make choices. As I think about your listening audience, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? They could be in that same journey. And that's quite all right, because that obviously you who you are today. The guiding principle that I'm applying back to your key points from this podcast is what I'm recommending others think about to say, hey, to stay grounded and not forget who you are then you should, you might want to consider being that servant leader to stay connected and worry about relationships and nurture every relationship that you have. It's about putting people first, having that growth mindset to understand others, to really pay attention to who they are and what they're about so that you could serve them with that positive attitude. And that wraps up this episode. Another great conversation on cascading leadership. Caesar, thank you so much for joining us. And I am super excited to have you join us on the DEI panel conversation that we will be having a few weeks from this recording. So that's going to be highly impactful. Great conversation. For the listeners out there, make sure you check us out. We are available on all major or most major podcast platforms. We will have a YouTube and TikTok channel up soon, but thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Give us your feedback and looking forward to another great episode down the line. Caesar, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure. It was a real treat to, to hang out with you in the imaginary I'll be here. Thanks uh, to your listening audience for the chance uh, to share. And I hope to uh, look forward to our next chance here at the panel. We are out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.